Welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world of the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard. I am Director of ECFR. And this week, we are going to talk about the German election results, not just the election, which we've done in many podcasts before. We're going to look at what they mean, what kind of coalition could emerge from them, and above all, how they're perceived across Europe and what they mean for the future of our continent. And I'm absolutely thrilled to welcome an all-star cast to help us make sense of these issues. First up is, is Jeremy Cliff, who is international editor of The New Statesman, who's been writing some wonderful profiles of some of the key protagonists, as well as trying to work out what the consequences and the meaning of the Merkel era were um, in uh, the last few weeks. Also uh, down the line, we have Luca Fries, who's calling in from Jutland. She's not just director of the think tank Eurocha, one of ECFR's co-chairs, but she's also been all around the country um, following the German election, has also written a brilliant book about uh, Angela Merkel and uh, the end of her career and down the line from Paris, we have Sylvie Kaufmann, who is the editorial director and columnist at Le Monde, as well as an ECFR board member and council member. And finally, back to the podcast from Berlin, we have Jana Pulierin, who's a senior policy fellow, head of ECFR's Berlin office, and also author of a recent paper. So thank you all very much for, for joining. Um, we now know the results of the elections. The big speculation is what kind of coalition is going to emerge from it. There are two dominant models which are being spoken about, although another grand coalition might also be possible should it be uh, proved beyond the grasp of, of the politicians to, to go either for a traffic-like coalition, which would involve the SPD, the Liberal Party and the Green Party, or a Jamaica coalition, which would be led by the CDU, CSU, and involve the Green Party and the Liberals. So maybe before we start going into what this means for Europe, we can look at how likely those two options are and what they would actually mean. In the round table after the election, uh, they were talking about how this shouldn't just be based on, in, on electoral arithmetic, but that there should be a tragende idea, uh, a, a load-bearing idea to carry this through. So maybe Jeremy and Jana, you can tell us uh, about these two coalitions and what kind of load-bearing ideas might might be. Jeremy, you wrote this brilliant article about Olaf Scholz and the idea of Scholzism, um, and that would presumably be a, a core part of of a traffic-like coalition if it does emerge. Uh, that does seem to be the most favoured idea because the SPD did get fractionally more votes than the CDU, one and a half percent more. So tell us what, what um, uh, a traffic-like coalition would look like and whether you think it, it really is uh, going to happen. Sure, Mark. I, I'd start by saying, although the SPD did come first, they have 10 more seats than the CDU, CSU. That's not the main reason why I think a traffic-like government is more likely. I think the reasons are much more political. Either Jamaica or traffic-like would both have about 55% of the seats in the Bundestag. That's a comfortable majority. A few seats here or there doesn't make a huge difference. And coming first in a German election doesn't decide everything either. You know, Germany was governed between 1969 and 1972, and then 74 to 82 by the SPD as the second largest party under Willy Brandt and then Helmut Schmidt. So nobody's under any illusions that you that coming first or automatically delivers you the chancellery. 
I think it's much more political. First of all, there's a sense of momentum with the SPD that comes from the fact that it put on five points on its last result in 2017. Um, the fact that the CDU-CSU lost eight points. So there's a sort of a sense of direction there that, that, that benefits the SPD. And then there's just the overwhelming popularity gap between Olaf Scholz and Armin Laschet um, that existed before the election. And it's accentuated even more since the election. There was a poll that came out, um, I think it was yesterday, showing that something like 58% of Germans think that Scholz should be the next chancellor compared to about 11% for, for Laschet. And I think that that will affect how the FPD and the Greens, who are, of course, the kingmakers here, would see the choice between traffic light and Amp uh, traffic light and Jamaica. And I think it makes the what the CDU CSU would have to offer them to persuade them to join a Jamaica coalition very high indeed. I wouldn't completely rule it out, but I think we've got to assume that traffic light is the most likely. Um, there are, of course, internal policy differences. We could perhaps get onto those, um, particularly on the economy, fiscal policy, and indeed some aspects of European policy perhaps relevant to this discussion. Um, but briefly on your second point about Olaf Scholz, yes, I did, I did write a profile of him, spoke to various people who work with him or knew him as mayor of Hamburg, for example, as well as uh, Merkel's finance minister, of course, in the last three years. And yeah, I think there is something that you could call Scholzism. Um, and, it, you know, it, it's, it's a certain attitude towards the, the, the divides that have opened up in Western societies, particularly Germany in the last sort of decades, um, divides um, documented by the likes of Michael Sandel with his writing on justice and meritocracy. He's apparently also been influenced by Didier Eribon uh, and his sort of writing about fractures in French society. And he's, he's, he's driven by this idea of respect that even if you can't kind of cushion everyone from the effects of globalization, technological change, you need to start from a kind of position of um, taking the dignity of work seriously, whatever the economic value of that work. And so this word respect ran all the way through his campaign. It was on all the posters. It was associated with the manifesto. It was in his speeches. Um, and it's, I think it's, you know, it, it's emerging as a political style and as a political approach, but I think it is interesting and um, you know, there the, the might be things for other social democrats elsewhere in Europe to learn from that, but that's perhaps another conversation. And if there is a coalition with the, the Greens and the FDP, apart from offering them great jobs, and there will no doubt be a lot of fuss about that, what philosophically would he, would Charlotte be able to offer? I think that the, the, the drive of the new government, if it does end up being a traffic light, would be a sort of modernization or social modernization. That would be the, the organizing idea. And Schultz himself said on Monday morning that he wanted to build a government that would be um, social, ecological and liberal. Um, and I think I think the attitude would be that, you know, after 16 years of Christian Democrat government of Angela Merkel, this would be a chance for something new. There's a lot of talk about where, to what extent this was a change election, to what extent Germans were voting for change. And of course, you can debate to what extent the SPD represents that. They were in government for 12 of Merkel's 16 years. Scholz is her, her vice chancellor. Um, but I think particularly from the other two parties, you know, the, the FDP and the Greens were disproportionately popular among younger Germans. That's striking. They both have a sort of a, a modernizing aura. They both talk about reforming society, about embracing realities of the, the 2020s in a way that the, the big two old Volksparteien, the Christian Democrats and Social Democrats don't. And I think I think that would have to be the, the sort of central organizing idea. I mean, you can get into greater detail about how you would bridge the policy divides on things like um, the debt break, on public investment, on um, you know what happens to the stability and growth pact in in, in the EU. Um, but I think that sort of in terms of a political 
ethos, I think it would be this, this sense of we've had 16 years of Merkel. She provided moderate, stable government, but didn't move us forward into the future as much as many people would have w- wanted. And it's this uh, government's job to do that. Great. Thank you, Jeremy. So before we look at what this means for Europe, um, Jana, why don't you give us the alternative scenario? What does I mean, a Jamaica coalition look like? What's the the kind of low, A, how likely is it? How uh, much life does Ahmed Laschet have uh, after presiding over his party's worst election result um, uh, since the Federal Republic started? Um, and um, if he does survive, if he manages to get the other parties on board, what is he going to offer as an alternative to to Charlottesism? What is Laschetism? <laughs> I think um, maybe uh, start with the likelihood of all of this. I think Jamaica is not off the table. I agree with Jeremy, but it's not really um, highly likely, uh, especially not under Amin Laschet, because I think um, ever since um, Sunday evening, when the results um, became public, what we've seen is um, that more and more people from the CDU, CSU have come out to basically speak up against Ami Laschet to to say that the party needs to modernize, that we need new personnel. And um, Markus Söder, who was not uh, Laschet's biggest fan, let's put it like this, throughout the the campaign. Bavarian Christian. Yes, the Bavarian minister president um, now yesterday um, basically criticized Armin Laschet for not congratulating Olaf Scholz for the victory and for saying the Jamaica uh, option is, uh, while not off the table, uh, for sure not the first option, and that now Olaf Scholz has the task um, to form a government first. Um, So a lot of critique. and not a lot of support um, vis-a-vis Armin Laschet. That's why I think um, his role is uh, in the party is really, um, yeah, I think it's, it's not guaranteed that he will stay along much longer. The problem is that for him, it's a bit either up or out. Um, so either he becomes chancellor now or he becomes the new Martin Schulz, uh, basically, because Yesterday, um, there was another election who becomes the chairman for the um, kind of party um, family, the chairperson, and Laschet uh, wanted to have some stakeholder um, person who, uh, some some caretaker person who just is in office for a couple of weeks. And he did not succeed. Uh, now they elected um, Graf Brinkhaus for um, six months. Um, but uh, yeah, Jens Spahn, uh, Friedrich Merz and uh, Norbert Röttgen have already announced that they would consider to run. Um, and so I think what we will see uh, in the next days is um, yeah, a leadership struggle in the CDU-CSU. Um, and if uh, yeah, Laschet will be out. The question is, what happens with Markus Söder? Will he get the chance to have some coalition negotiations um, with uh, with the Liberals and the Greens? And in opposition, who will basically be the new Angela Merkel? Because Angela Merkel uh, years ago basically killed. Um, um, Schäuble uh, over uh, kind of the the, the 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 financial scandal the CDU was involved in and emerged as the new leader. And the question is now, who dares basically to kill Amin Laschet to become the new leader of the CDU? Okay, so we don't think it's the most likely outcome, but if for some reason it did happen, what would the offer of Laschet be to the others? 
um, and what might make it more attractive. Some people have speculated that the fact that he is so weak and under so much attack could actually make him a more attractive partner for the Green Party and for the FDP because um, one of the, the big things which Merkel uh, uh, did was to completely overshadow her coalition partners and that wasn't a great place to be uh, the second party in a coalition with Merkel. Maybe being the second party in a coalition with, with Laschet could be more attractive because he's, he's so much less strong. Maybe that is attractive, but I think first that would mean that the Liberals and the Greens need to tell their own voters that they align with the loser of the party. Because, um, I mean, if there is one loser of this election, this is clearly um, Armin Laschet and the CDU. And so I think it's it's a pretty hard story um, to sell for both the Greens and the Liberals. I think what would be attractive, though, is that... Um, I mean, I mean, Laschet would have nothing to lose or the CDU basically has nothing to lose. So they could maybe offer um, basically the compartmentalization of politics. So to give the Greens the um, climate policy and to give them a rather free hand um, and the Liberals some other policy areas and maybe to, yeah, that, that's that's basically what, what Armin Laschet already suggested um, to compartmentalize it and to, to give everybody um, what is dearest to um, his heart and then to, to basically um, give him a rather free hand. I think that wouldn't work in practice, but that could be attractive. Okay. And are there any policy offers which might be, or maybe we should ask, look at now as we kind of go into the into the European significance of this to tell us about um, what people should keep an eye out for. I mean, Jeremy has already laid out some of the things that are going to be contentious between the different parties. There's going to be a big uh, tension about who gets the finance ministry and what kind of fiscal rules Germany adheres to. That's obviously one thing which I imagine will be of interest to other people. On foreign policy issues, there have been some kind of big fights about defence spending and about policy towards China and Russia. I mean, what do you think the most important questions are, Luca? Well, first, thank you very much for having me. And I, com I agree completely with uh, the option of the of the traffic lights coalition. However, I do remember four years ago, uh, similar sort of uh, podcast like this one, and we all agreed that it had to be Jamaica. And then suddenly something happened and we still sort of ended up with a GroKo, so a grand coalition. So I'm a bit so worried about that maybe something will happen again there. But I think what I'll be watching out for, uh, obviously also the point that Jana mentioned, who would be the Mena murder, now not be a Mena murderin like Chancellor Merkel, but a Mena murder with regards to then the, the CDU, uh, and then particularly also what happens to the CDU. I mean, the CDU has been a pillar of European integration for decades. What if they suddenly sort of engage in a civil war, more or less, sort of about the sort of the who should be the head of the party, and also if they would somehow then also in part of their own sort of reconstitution of the party would suddenly sort of strike a more EU skeptical view? Who knows? I mean, I think that's something that we definitely all have to look out for. What happens also to Ursula von der Line sitting in the Berlemont building. She must be pretty home alone if one looks upon the EPP group uh, at the moment. But answering more sort of specifically your question, I'll be looking out for two things there. What happens with climate change, obviously, the Fit for 55 overall agenda, and particularly how do you finance it? And that immediately leads us into the overall discussion about uh, the EU's fiscal rules. 
Could one imagine a, a compromise within the German coalition government where there is money set aside for a new big climate fund within Germany, which could then set a signal then also for the EU as such to come up with some kind of a climate recovery fund or just transition much bigger than the one we are discussing right now, where you can then also use the principle that you've had with the recovery fund that it's so much so cheap now to borrow money. That's going to be very interesting to see uh, how that one can be uh, sort of discussed within Germany. That will send important signals uh, for Europe as such. Taking the uh, Danish or the Nordic angle, um, there, although uh, Frederiksen, the Danish prime minister, congratulated Olaf Scholz on Instagram uh, Sunday night, uh, it's very clear that they are anything but soulmates. Also, if one looks upon their immigration policy, uh, you could say that Frederiksen came to power by outflanking the Danish People's Party on migration policy. As far as I've been able to see, Olaf Scholz has not moved an inch on migration policy. So there's already there tension. And with regards to what I just mentioned, uh, creating some kind of a green uh, recovery fund or maybe having a growth and stability pact that also has a green dimensioning dimension. Well, there uh, it's very clear from a Nordic perspective that the frugal fall does not look sort of in a very optimistic way upon that discussion, to put it very mildly. So I do see some tensions coming up already now there. Um, be great to go into more detail on, on that and also to think about how these internal tensions are going to get solved because the FDP has taken a very frugal stance on a lot of those kinds of issues and uh, love to hear what, what Jeremy and, and Jana think about those issues too. But Paris um, is obviously watching these negotiations very closely. Macron came to power with a kind of dream of, of building a, part, a new kind of partnership with Germany. Merkel has not been the partner of his dreams over the last few years. In the end, they did manage to, to move quite a lot with the onset of COVID, and Olaf Scholz was an important part of shifting the German position on that. But how uh, optimistic do people in, in Paris feel after the frustration of, of uh, the first few years of the Macron regime, where relations hit a kind of all-time low uh, after uh, Paris and Berlin found themselves butting up against each other on, on issue after issue? Uh, yes, well, exactly. You remember it was exactly four years ago, the Sorbonne speech. And as you say, uh, Mark, all those dreams of uh, refunding Europe with the help of, uh, of the German government. Uh, but uh, <laughs> I think uh, Macron is done with dreams uh, four years later. So I don't think we're going to have another Sorbonne speech, uh, though we'll have. Uh, some kind of uh, big speech before France takes the French presidency on January 1st. But uh, I think he's learned his lesson. Now, what, um, you know, there are mixed feelings here uh, about this election, this German election, which is, of course, uh, followed very closely. Uh, there is admiration. Uh, for the civility of this election, you know, compared to our <laughs> campaigns, uh, the orderly way it's been conducted and, you know, how uh, the rival candidates have been addressing each other. And so, that, you know, I think the French are pretty impressed about this. And at the same time, they are puzzled, really, um, including in government circles, about the fact, about how the loser the big loser of this campaign is still being talked about as a possible chancellor and not only him, but, you know, might he be killed in the process, his replacement, uh, who hasn't led the party 
in the campaign could become, you know, so it's it's the German way of, of talking, of negotiating those coalitions is still uh, very um, uh, puzzling for us. But regarding the substance, I think uh, Macron um, is open to, uh, to these two coalitions because he's always said they are, uh, I mean, the, all those candidates are seen as pro-European. And so I think France is pretty comfortable with this. Now, if you go uh, further into details, of course, there's um, there's a, a small cloud uh, showing in the sky, which is called FDP. And obviously, if FDP, which I understand will be part of any coalition, um, uh, gets the Ministry of Finance, uh, that's going to be tougher for the French because obviously one of their big objectives is uh, is a um, uh, reform of the uh, budgetary rules, of the fiscal rules, and, and the uh, stability and growth pact. And there's really a strong position here that those rules were uh, established in the 90s in a totally different uh, world economic environment uh, than you know, the inflation rate, interest rate, growth rates were completely different. Post-COVID, obviously, situation has brought all these, these Debt burden uh, with level which cannot be really sustainable in in the framework of the uh, stability and growth pact. So there's a lot of expectation about the reforms of these rules, and there's the feeling that um, uh, it might be a little bit more difficult with the with the FDP than we with the other partners in the coalition. Uh, other than that, you know, Scholz. Um, uh, it's been it's been stressed here that uh, Olaf Scholz worked very well with Bruno Le Maire in the negotiation of the uh, rescue package and the rescue plan and and it it is Olaf Scholz who mentioned this Hamiltonian moment uh, about the, the the common debt so um, you know he's he's really seen here as somebody you can the French can work with um, so I'll stop there. Sorry. It'd be great to, to go into a bit more details about the you know the possible deals that could emerge, as Luca was suggesting, around these fiscal issues and the green issues, whether there might be a kind of green get-out-of-jail-free card for the FDP on the fiscal rules. But before we do that, maybe, CV, you could talk a tiny bit about the foreign policy questions, because France obviously is... Uh, very keen to have partners on foreign policy issues. It's been a pretty rough um, few weeks with the AUKUS deal, which we talked about on the podcast last week. Um, and um, it, that's made the idea of European sovereignty and strategic autonomy even more central to, to French visions. How does France look at the prospect of a, of a traffic light government from a foreign policy perspective? Uh, you're absolutely right. And second to these economic and, and, and fiscal expect rules, expectation that you can put defence and, and foreign policy and Europe European sovereignty issues uh, uh, as a priority, as a second priority. Uh, and of course, particularly uh, after the, the AUKUS uh, fallout. Um, again, you know, the Greens are seen as uh, good partners on this. Um, uh, regarding SD, SPD and CDU, there's not so much difference. You know, it's a, it's a way, now everybody's looking at, at Angela Merkel's legacy and uh, there's this question here, how much of this legacy will be preserved? Uh, of course, 
um, there's a hope that on foreign policy, there will be more vision that the next chancellor or the next coalition will be more open to the to the French uh, vision and, and, and to its emphasis on, on, on European sovereignty, because it looks like the words auto, uh, strategic autonomy are uh, seen as uh, pretty um, devastating, in fact, or negative. So I think you're going to see more of, uh, you'll hear more of sovereign, uh, European sovereignty than, than strategic autonomy. Uh, but, you know, it, it, it's still an open question, I think, seen from, from here in Paris, whether there will be less mercantilism in the, in the German foreign policy, whether uh, the next coalition will, will accept that being a strong actor in foreign policy may incur some, some, may incur some economic costs for Germany. What will it be uh, on Russia and China? Um, we don't see very, very clear signs other than from the Greens. Uh, who have put out new new ideas, but uh, the the other two big parties not so much. And I have a two finger because I think defense is really crucial here when it comes to a traffic light coalition and the French. Because on EU defense, the Greens were skeptical when it came to the European Defense Fund right. and it, such ideas like yeah um, arms exports regulations, which makes joint armament projects like FCAS or um, others difficult. I think there. Um, uh, are a lot of uh, problems for the French when it yeah when it comes to joint arms exports, joint uh, armament projects, uh, the EDF, the Euro drone, um, all all these things. Um, I think that the Germans under a, a traffic light coalition and the French could be slightly out of sync here. Look, you wanted to come in as well. Yeah, that was basically another point. Rule of law. I mean, uh, fiscal rules. I know I mentioned that myself, and that will be important. Uh, but uh, I guess it's not that urgent, but rule of law to find some kind of common ground between France and Germany and the rest of basically Europe. What on earth do we do with regards to rule of law now also that we have the decision coming up? Uh, will Hungary and Poland actually be able to obtain money from the recovery fund? That's going to be very urgent, I would argue. And there, there is a worry, I would say, that we are now moving into this uh, double sort of vacuum of politics with uh, Germany being very sort of engaged in its own sort of uh, coalition negotiations now and, and France obviously very soon France will move into presidential elections so we have a number of topics here where I think there would also be a task for other countries then to step up their game I'm just wondering who that actually will be. So um, Jeremy it'd be good to go into a bit more detail on this on the deal around fiscal rules and then look it'd be great after that talk just about the overall political makeup. I mean, you were hinting at the fact that the political weights will change dramatically as a result of this election. If, if there is a traffic light coalition, it'd be kind of worth talking about that. But Jeremy, why don't you tell us a bit more about, about um, the speculation about how, how people work their way through the fiscal minefield? Yeah, I mean, you'd have to assume that uh, a traffic light coalition would be coming from the parties of that government would be coming from very different starting positions. You just need to look at overviews of their election manifestos to see you know, the, the, the very different distributional impact, for example, that the tax and spending policies of the, the three parties would imply. But look more closely, and there is room for, 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 for consensus. I mean, the, the, the economist Jens Sudakum has, has been publishing on this in the last days, very interestingly, on, for example, how you could um, sort of respect the FDP insistence on the 
notorious debt break, while also freeing up some of the investment you'd need to do the uh, the decarbonization that the Greens in particular want to do by using uh, some sort of special purpose vehicle or a sort of off balance sheet uh, investment fund that would be allowed within the uh, the debt break, but would give you give you money uh, to, to to spend on green infrastructure. There are other other areas that he points to, for example, um, you know the SPD and the Greens want a wealth tax. The FDP is very much against that. He suggests that possibly you could um, move towards more progressive um, inheritance taxation as a, as a, as a compromise. Um, he also talks about how the, the FDP could trade their demand for tax cuts overall um, against uh, more generous tax exemptions for companies that invest in the digital economy, uh, green industry, where Germany has some catching up to do. So there are areas where they can find some common ground. Um, but I'd just like to add something on the European uh, sort of po- point. Uh, I, I was speaking this morning to Martin Schulz, who was previously previously ran against Angela Merkel as the SPD chancellor candidate, less successfully than Olaf Scholz. And, and he was sort of waxing lyrical about this possible new European trio of Scholz, Macron and Draghi, and how finally he said you've got the three most important leaders in the union aligned on, on making the stability and growth pact about growth as well as just stability, and he he suggested that they could find they could forge some alliance for uh, you know rewriting some of those fiscal rules for for for, for different circumstances for the twenty twenties. And I I personally am a bit more skeptical about Schultz bringing in some transformation of German policy on on on, on this front. You know, he ran as a sort of continuity Merkel as a reassuring figure. He's known from his time in Hamburg as a sort of guardian of solid finances. He was very proud of balancing the budget uh, in, in his home state. Um, and you know, the Germ- German public opinion hasn't fundamentally changed. Um, but what I would say is that there are various sort of um, uh, sort of exogenous forces that might be moving the debates anyway. So whether we're talking about defense, for example, or kind of um, European sovereignty, you've had the Afghanistan debacle, you've had AUKUS, those are pushing events in a certain direction in any case. There are shifts going on within the German economic establishment towards a more, um, shall, we, shall we put it, as empirical uh, sort of approach to fiscal rules and, and, and economic policy. Um, similarly, on, on the climate, you know, the, the mood is moving towards more drastic uh, investment in, in decarbonization. And I think that perhaps perhaps a difference that we might expect from Schultz versus Merkel is that while Merkel had a habit of sort of biding her time on these sorts of changes until the last possible moment, I can see Schultz possibly being more proactive about working with the grain of those changes. So he's not going to be some... Um, you know, he's not going to embrace the entire Sorbonne agenda on day one of being chancellor if he does become chancellor, but he might be more willing to go with the flow on on, on changes that are happening around him. So, um, Luca, why don't we end with you? And, and if you could talk a bit more about how this could change the sort of balance of power around the European Council table, because you talked earlier about how, you know, Ursula von der Leyen, um, Come, came in with the support of the of the EPP, and we've had a period where that was the dominant political block within the European Union. Now, not so much. There are lots of certainly from a Scandinavian perspective, it's all social democrats. <laughs> but um, there are any big countries now with EPP uh, governments at the moment. 
Yeah, just uh, looked upon a map this morning and it's definitely not very blue. I mean, EPP color there and particularly if you look towards uh, Central and Eastern Europe, that's that's actually the only place where you then find uh, conservative governments. Whereas uh, my region up here in, in the north, I mean, for the first time ever, you have uh, all uh, countries having a center left government. And for the first time ever, you'll also then at the same time, most likely then have a SPD led government. So, so that will obviously change sort of the power game within the European Council and will also possibly have uh, repercussions when we move into the Spitzenkandidat process or the European Parliament election coming up, uh, and that will happen uh, sooner than, than most of us uh, think. But that being said, I think one will have to remind sort of our, our listeners that Olaf Scholz is not exactly a person who is a visionary with regards to the European Union or visionary as such. I think that he often quotes Helmut Schmidt, the former chancellor, that if, that if you have visions, you should go and see a doctor. So, so I'm not expecting sort of a huge sort of uh, some new ideas coming out uh, of the Social Democratic Party without, with regards to that, although I agree with Jeremy that he will be sort of quicker also in, in adapting and taking on board some of the ideas coming out of France, for instance. And what will be really interesting to see is, I mean, whether we can find some kind of compromise then between the frugal four or the Hanseatic League, whatever you like to call it, and a new uh, SPD-led uh, government. And the hope I could have is that one could somehow use climate change there as a, as a landing zone, basically agreeing upon the fact that if you invest in, in climate change, there you can sort of be more flexible with how you define that. Uh, and that could possibly be also something that the Nordic countries uh, could accept. But uh, so far, you have seen the Nordic countries actually sign the letter sort of initiated by Austria saying that one cannot accept a reform of the uh, Stability and Growth Pact. So I see some, some clouds on the horizon for the social democratic Europe, so to speak, in my part of the region. Okay, well, we've been, we're slightly over time. There's been a fascinating discussion. There's one thing left to do on this podcast, which is our bookshelf segment. Why don't we go to you first, Jana? What's on your bookshelf at the moment? Um, so I would strongly endorse Jeremy's writing slightly, his portrait of Olaf Scholz uh, and also his portrait of Angela Merkel. I think both were kind of masterpieces. Um, and yeah, uh, in the New Statesman, I think you can find them online. And um, I really recommend them strongly. I enjoyed them very much. Thank you very much, Jana. That's that's very kind. What's on your on your bookshelf at the moment, Jeremy? Uh, I just read uh, "Speak Silence" in search of W. G. Sebald, which is a biography of 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 the great writer, German German British writer, because he moved he moved to the UK and spent most of his career there. Uh, who died uh, almost exactly twenty years ago? Very interesting portrait of a sort of haunting writer, um, very complex man. But um, if you like his novels as as I do, it's it's worth reading. And next up is I'm going to read uh, Luke Van Midler new book pandemonium about the european response to the, the 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 pandemic which i'm sure like his other pieces on on, on europe will be a masterpiece um, yeah great my mum was a very close friend of, of max the about and, and van midler's book was also on my bookshelf earlier in the year so that's Great. I second both of those recommendations. Look at what's on your bookshelf at the moment. Well, that's pretty easy. I mean, not sort of to, for this to turn into a sort of club where we sort of pat each other's backs, but I, I like to do that anyway. But I am chairing a session with you, Mark and Yvonne, in a couple of days' time. So I'm reading your book. And once I'm done with that, I will read the, the new book that I just bought in Germany yesterday about the fascinating story by the couple who invented the BioNTech vaccine on how they actually did it. I think that's also going to be a fascinating read. 
Wonderful. And Sylvie? Yeah, um, I haven't yet read your book, Mark, but I can't (laughs) wait. Uh, Because I've been reading an excellent uh, book by Jean-Marie Guénaud, who is a council member and uh, uh, ECFR council member and also former Deputy Secretary General of the United Nations. And this book is called, it's in French, and I really hope it's going to be translated into English. It's called Le Premier 21e Siècle, the first 21st century. And it's a very lucid diagnosis of, of the state of the world three decades after the collapse of communism and of the crisis the West uh, find, uh, finds itself immersed into, and there are some uh, solutions offered also. So I, I, I do recommend this book very much, as well as Luke von Middler's book, which is excellent, yeah. Great, and I have just got a book in the post, which I'm very much looking forward to, called Command and Persuade, Crime, Law and the State Across History by Peter Baldwin, which looks at how the state has uh, has emerged as a result of um, its ever-expanding activities that are fighting crime and, and, and introducing the rule of law. It looks like a really interesting study. If um, any of you want to follow um, the recommendation of reading my book, and, but you don't want to pay for it, there is still an opportunity to send questions in to, uh, for a special edition of the podcast where we're, I'm answering any questions on it. If you send a question to mark.leonard at ecfr.eu, the best question will get a free copy of The Age of Unpeace. So um, uh, there's still time to take part in that exciting competition. But for now, um, we're going to end this podcast. Uh, we will put links up to all of the different publications that were mentioned on our website at www.ecfr.eu slash podcast. If you have enjoyed listening to us, please do let other people know about it by writing about it on your social media page or ours, but above all, by giving us a positive review or uh, rating on whatever platform you've used to download it. But for now, from Jeremy Cliff, from Luca Fries, from Sylvie Kaufman, from Jana Pulierin, and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of this podcast is Lucy Halpenthal, and our editor is Alessandra Thompson. Mm-hmm.